0: So as I begin uh, this evening's talk, um, which will be entitled, uh, The Buddha's Way to Happiness, um, I just first want to congratulate all of you for making it through the first day. um, It's no small matter, it's one of the rarest things that human beings do, to stop, to keep quiet, to look within, uh, to, in a sense, as the Buddha described it, to go against the stream, to swim against the stream of uh, the um, the momentum of conditioning that has, from, from for a long time, uh, encouraged us to um, to try to be anywhere but here. A Culture that is uh, driven by compulsion, and the obsession with what's next. And all of us carry the legacy, the conditioning of that that momentum. And so to stop actually requires that we feel the the residue or the legacy of that life of of, uh, compulsion and um, uh, incessant what the Buddha called bhava, or becoming, always in a state of, of sense, tethering our sense of okayness to something that um, hasn't even happened yet. And that's just left us, it's left our bodies very tight, hearts contracted, and when we stop, we feel, oh my Lord, how was it sitting with your bodies today? Was it a bliss trip? No. No. <laughs> So it's really not a, it's, it's so rare to stop and actually feel it and to have insight. How about, how was your mind today? Did it move where you, did it stay where you wanted it to? <laughs> did you understand a little bit more of what at least we tongue-in-cheek call mental illness? <laughs> I say that because I wanted to have a chance to read a passage from a meditation master named Bhante Gunaratna uh, where he describes the mind. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation and I don't think it takes very long, somewhere in the process of meditation you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse (laughs) on wheels barreling down the hill Utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way and you never noticed. Not easy to take a look at the madness of our minds going to and fro. And this is, this mind world is what we usually. Uh, where we usually go to for refuge. We go to, we put our trust in this, but we are making uh, a radical shift. We're making a shift from putting our trust in, in the activity of our mind, rather to put our trust in that quality of knowing, putting our trust in awareness. Once you begin that process of putting your trust in awareness, then your mind can be as crazy as it wants to be. Your body can even hurt. Everything becomes workable when you begin to shift into that, um, that, um, that positionless position of noticing. And this is why we call this, um, this capacity to be awake a refuge, a place that we can put our trust The Buddha did not recommend this uh, just on a whim, this putting our trust in awareness, putting our trust in how things are right now and the capacity to know that. He did this based on a a arduous, uh, very similar to what we're doing, an arduous questioning, an arduous inquiry into the nature of reality. And everything that he taught the dharma that he discovered came out of, was born out of his own experience. So I'd like to describe tonight a little bit some pieces of his life. There are so many renditions of his life, and some of it is is perhaps real, some of it is mythology, but the pieces that I will include tonight are pretty reliable uh, examples of places in his life that you can find cross-culturally in all the different flavors of of Buddhism. But it's obvious that he did not uh, just adopt a new religion, that the confidence and faith and the transmission of his teachings that went on for the 45 years after his so-called awakening, that faith was born of direct experience it was not blind faith it was not belief it's something that was born out of the fabric of his life so like all of us relative to many people in the world because and the reason i say that is he lived a life of privilege and relative to much of the world we if you're able to be here you're living a relative life of privilege having having consciousness having general health having uh, enough resources or enough intelligence, enough curiosity, enough of many, many qualities that it, um, that it takes to be able to do this kind of journey, to be able to take time out of your busy schedules, uh, the demands of life. Uh, this is a, a kind of privilege and it's actually really rare in this world. Well, his life was the epitome of, of privilege and he could, as many people in the West today, people of all socioeconomic levels, can find ways of, could find ways of stimulating his senses, of delighting his senses. Uh, he could find ways that were unheard of in his time. We, as a culture, have found, we have maximized the capacity to find more new and interesting ways to stimulate our senses, to have certain kinds of pleasures. And we devote literally billions and billions every year to think up new ways to have have pleasure. And this is the environment that we have all been born into. The whole world is trending in that way, uh, for better or for worse. And this was the same condition My understanding is this was the same condition that the Buddha was born into. He was in his 20s, fit, attractive, uh, could just, he was pampered. His father uh, was a king, he was the prince. His father wanted him to go into his business. So he, he could have easily had a life of the continuation of the expansion of his sense pleasures, expanding his lands, expanding his opportunities for any kind of um, delight. This is what a lot of our, our golden dreams are, to expand our capacity for delight and for pleasure. But he began to, even though he had everything he could want, pleasure gardens and music going all day long, if he wanted it, and lovely maidens, at least in the, that's what it's said in the stories. But he started to feel quite restless, started to feel that, that existential queasiness, that feeling that many of you have probably had at one time or another, otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here, that something's not quite right, something is not quite at rest. Not quite, um, we're not quite satisfied. Any of you completely satisfied? Something, something's wrong. There's that feeling, something unsatisfactory. And he began to get this urge to, to find something meaningful and because his father kept him kind of protected, he didn't do a lot of wandering outside of the confines of his, uh, of his father's uh, lands and kingdom. But one day he decided to venture out beyond where he would normally venture. And you can think of this as metaphor in a way, that he began to venture beyond what was familiar and known to him. We tend to live in a little box, we tend to box ourselves in to a little defined sense of who we are. We tend to limit our routines. In fact, our, some of the brain science also says that we just keep re- we keep repeating the same... We get into the same kind of neural loops over and over again, and our lives become very defined by those um, those routines, both our brain routines and our, our life routines. So he had this... It was out of this... Um, Dissatisfaction. It became a, his so called dukkha or dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness became a kind of springboard that spawned this interest in finding something that w- might quench this thirst that he had, this feeling of something's not right. So he began to wander around his um, lands, and as the story goes, Again, you can think of this as metaphor. He came upon someone who was similar in age to him. He was at the time about 29 years old. And that somebody who was uh, similar in age was quite ill, extremely ill, uh, really verging on the potential to die. And this seems odd that a 29-year-old would be surprised by seeing someone his own age who could be extremely sick, uh, who could potentially die. But his, somehow he had been blind to this, and this speaks of our own capacity to be somewhat self-deceived. We tend to create this notion, and we protect ourselves from seeing anything that may shake our um, what, what he later called the pride in health. We tend to be, or pride in youth, I should say. And pride in health. So this shook him up, and it made him begin to ask a question. Is this going to happen to me? And the invitation is to ask ourselves that question. And he said, of course it's going to happen to me. And this began to make him even queasier. And then he, in his wanderings, he saw an extremely old person, again shaken, kind of shock and dismay at the, at the futility of that pride in youth and the futility and the pride in health. Eventually, sickness and death and, and old age were uh, inevitable. And then finally in his wanderings, he came upon a, um, a corpse, hadn't seen a corpse, 29 years old. You know, there's a lot of people who haven't seen corpses. I remember when I was uh, in, just before I went to graduate school, I, did, I lived for a while in Santa Cruz, uh, down the road here, and was sitting at the time with uh, a great teacher named Stephen Levine, whom probably many of you have read his books, and he did a lot of, done a lot of work on death and dying, and he used to take a group of us to sit with corpses as a, as a kind of practice and when I went to do this the first time for the first 15 or 20 minutes my mind could not accept that this was a, a, a dead being and it projected that the, that the body was moving which I found really interesting. I knew it was dead but I kept seeing it move. <laughs> Speaks again to that capacity for self-deception. So he saw sickness, old age, and death, what he later described as three of the four heavenly messengers. Heavenly messengers in that they have the the capacity to wake us out of our trance of, of pride in youth, pride in health, and pride in life. They wake us up and make us ask the question, what is this life about? And he began to think more and more, and he said, is life all about Having a lot of pleasurable experiences, getting a lot of stuff, then losing all that, then that one, and losing all of that, and being born, getting old, and die is that all there is to it? He said, Why should I, who's subject to birth, sickness, old age, and death, seek that which is subject to sickness, old age, and death, or, or to change and impermanence? It didn't make any sense anymore to, to, to devote his life to be under what he called a, a, to, st- to put his faith in things that were just so fleeting and unreliable. And he said that those who devote themselves to, to things that, uh, that are, are fleeting are, are engaged in a kind of misplaced faith, misplaced confidence, misplaced refuge and think about how much we go to our pleasures for refuge, for a place of safety, for a place of relief, for a place of well-being. So fortunately, he was—he didn't only see the uh, heavenly messengers of sickness, old age, and death. He also came upon someone he hadn't seen before, in the form of a, a renunciate, um, uh, a monastic. And whenever I talk about the monastic, monastic symbolizes not so much a lifestyle. and We tend to get very caught up in the life's thinking that we, in order to live an awakened life, that somehow we have to remove ourselves from the world. And we do, perhaps, in periods of time. Seems those beings over the centuries who have, whose hearts have, have awakened and have experienced that, um, that shift in uh, perception to a, from a place of bondage to a place of freedom, have all spent some time. Uh, outside of the, um, the, the, um, the field of our ordinary conditioning, our everyday activities, periods of time. But the renunciate that the Buddha saw was simply someone whose mind, whose attention had turned away from the ordinary preoccupations. And we can do that anywhere. Have our attention turned away from our ordinary preoccupations, from the gravitational field of me and mind and what I want to have. Any of you ever have those thoughts? to move from that gravitational field toward the gravitational field of awakening, of consciousness, of love, of um, of caring. This is what this monastic or this renunciate represented, someone who was creating the conditions in their life of um, contentment, of simplicity, of availability, to life, openness to life, where, one's, where that person has come out of that very narrow vortex. In fact, I, be, I thought that I would begin this evening, and I forgot, with this, my new favorite, not new, but my favorite uh, poem that's, that's really encapsulated a lot of what the direction of our practice is, um, a poem called Bugs in a Bowl by David Budbill. He says, Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a 1,000 years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving the bowl, their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, Cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or, look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around. Say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> say, nice bull. <bowl." laughs> so this renunciate, in a more... Uh, Immediate and practical way reminded the Buddha that there were those beings who may be able, there were beings who may be able to point him to something a little bit more reliable than the uh, devotion to the world of, of sense pleasures. And before I go on, later in his teachings, the Buddha described the world of sense pleasures as a wonderful realm, as a beautiful realm and the fact that we can even enjoy so many different pleasures the pleasure of spirit rock the pleasure of solitude the pleasure of connection the pleasure of good company the pleasure of of everything of sights sounds smells and tastes the fact that we can do that is the fruit of um, a certain kind of purity uh, what he called purity of action it says that uh, said in his teachings and it's really a part of the the what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth truth of the Buddha that he gave on after his awakening. But that this domain of sense pleasures, uh, we are allowed, we are able to actually appreciate them, enjoy them, because we have lived, relatively speaking, a life of non-harming. That if we're le- living a life where we're harming ourselves, others, not keeping those training guidelines that I spoke of last night where we're constantly covering our tracks with lies, with, uh, with, um, with clouding our perception with intoxicants, constantly being exploitive in our um, sexual relationships, uh, constantly being harsh in our speech, constantly uh, killing ourselves or others through you know, food, through whatever we're doing. If we're doing all those things, then it's very difficult to take delight in the world of of the senses. And they are really delicious. But he also recommended that we need to know three things about this world of sense pleasures, as much as they are the fruit of wholesome actions, of what he called purity of action. We need to know their pleasure, he suggested. We need to know what their defects or their dangers are. And what are the the defects or the dangers? They don't last very long. They leave in their wake, they leave the residue of dissatisfaction, of queasiness, and they tend to become the cause of, generate more and more feeling of desire, of wanting. And when our minds are in a state of wanting, what are, they, what are they experiencing? Did any of you notice today? Were you in a state of wanting at any point during the day? It's not exactly a state of contentment. It's a state of, of dissatisfaction. It's a state that, um, that, is, that makes us feel as though our well-being is actually hostage to what happens next. Any of you feel that today? When's that bell going to ring? It's one flavor of it. So this is the, the, the pleasure of the senses, marvelous, if we understand uh, the dangers they're fleeting. If we understand they're fleeting, then we can, we can as uh, I think it was William Blake, he says, "He who bind, he or she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy but she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So if we understand their defects, then we're, we can work with, the, we can enjoy this life of pleasure. And this is the third thing that he suggested, that we understand what it means to, fr- to be free of this kind of uh, dependency, this kind of trance that believes that, the, that our sense of well-being depends on that next, um, that next golden dream. So this is what um, the Buddha began to sense, both the pleasure of things, their inherent dissatisf- unsatisfactoriness, and he began to sense that there may, be, uh, there may be some way to be free with this world of, of change, with the fact of sickness and old age and death. And he heard that there were some meditation teachers who might be able to guide him on his path And he left home. And this is very controversial. From our present vantage point, somebody who leaves home leaves a wife, a child. It's not very attractive looking. It's, not, it's, it's kind of hard to grok exactly how someone could do that. I can't imagine doing that. I have a six-and-a-half-year-old daughter at home and a beautiful partner who I'm very bonded with and can't imagine just checking out. But nevertheless, he felt this very strong urge. He even told his dad, I can't go into your business. For me to, to just keep doing what I'm doing would be like sitting on a bed of coals if, no, if there's no peace in my heart. So he felt this very strong desire, this holy longing So you hear this, and it it wasn't as though he was free of desire. He had very strong desire. But he had a desire for something that no other desire could fulfill, which was to find within him a reliable place to rest, a reliable refuge. Because he could see in in his body, in his pleasures, there was um, nothing reliable to be found there. No wonder we feel a little queasy. It's um, it's a little, because every message we get, isn't it, uh, as one teacher, Bo Lozoff, put it, it, the message is the way to happiness is to keep up with the Joneses. But He says it's time that we understand that the Joneses are not happy. And he goes on and gives a litany of all the problems that they have. He says, this is the American dream. But he says, it's time that we wake up from this dream. And a very hard-hitting passage from Sogyal Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, puts it this way. Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this endless cycle of of having, getting, having, losing, the gerbil wheel effect of life, of being in a constant state of um, waiting and dissatisfaction. He says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the real or true source of joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape its traps, the more we seem to fall into them, the traps that it is so ingenious at setting for us, As one Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery, were like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water, designed to make us even thirstier. So this is the life that we're. <laughs> this is the life that we're born into. <laughs> it is time to wake up from, from, a, from this dream. The good news is that, and something that really expresses itself in this, in the life of the Buddha and in our practice, there is a, a way out. There is a way to come to a wise relationship with this condition that all of us have been born into. And nurtured. Uh, and this is precisely what we're doing here. So when the Buddha discovered these meditation teachers that were available at the time that were, um, that would possibly give him uh, some, allow him to touch something that was more reliable, uh, he'd immediately followed and started doing their practice. And my understanding is that elements of what we're doing here are part of the practices that he did with these first teachers. They were teaching what we sometimes call uh, tranquility or concentration practices. Now there are elements of what we're doing here that are about the arou- arise- arousing the conditions for concentration to arise because concentration or a mind that is well collected and composed Having a sense of presence and composure is, is really quite essential to be able to see deeply into our nature. But we use concentration here in service of applying it toward wisdom, not just concentration for itself. But at the time that the Buddha was discovering these practices, what these teachers were offering was concentration for itself, tranquility for itself, and quickly because of his wholehearted longing, his, this one desire that no other desire could fill, fulfill, his one point in interest in something other than the next uh, best pleasure, he quickly took to the practice and began to experience uh, the fruits of the very activity that we're doing of connecting with our experience and sustaining connecting with that direct feeling of your body, connect feeling, the direct experience of the breath, sustaining that awareness, and then as we expand the instructions, connecting with whatever's predominant and staying with that experience, recognizing the unfolding of our experience. In this case, he was just focusing on one singular experience, and quite quickly, his mind entered into uh, beautiful states of, uh, of concentration. That with those states came a feeling of great contentment, great sense of rapture, a great sense of being immovable, being so steady like a mountain. And the states that he entered into in his practice, maybe you even in this beginning day, even though there was probably a lot of feeling a lot of the, what Mary, our friend Mary Orr calls the swamp, you know, just your mind just sluggish and the body aching and heavy and all that. There may have been moments where your mind was just, for a time, effortlessly not looking back, not looking ahead, just hanging out here, just present. Any of you notice that, or just moments? Well, this is, it's not so far away. We get little glimpses of this. But he experienced this sense of great um, concentration and he described it as a, as a feeling of unmixed happiness, just no shadow of any, anything in his mind other than this feeling of, of wholeness and oneness and um, tranquility. And he realized that this is a this this state is wonderful, and concentration has many many benefits. It's so re, it's so restful for our bodies, and the more we enjoy the the these moments of composure, the less we interested we are in complication and excessive stimulation. We just don't want to do anything that would disturb a, a sense of calm. So there's something about it that begins to can really help us and really change our attitude toward what really brings uh, a, sense of, um, a more satisfying sense of relief. Not only was it satisfying and peaceful, but it lasted so much longer than the usual pleasures of the senses. And so he was quite taken with this capacity to, that human beings have to train their minds he later said, you know, if if this wasn't possible to do this, I wouldn't ask you to do it, to train. It reminds us we are so trainable. We're not just stuck with our conditioning, our adaptations, all the crazy things that we've done just to survive out of, of, um, of love for ourselves but out of a lot of ignorance. We're not stuck with all of the effects of our traumas. We, we can actually... Um, emerge with a sense of much greater sense of happiness. And he saw that this kind of happiness that he was experiencing was far superior to the happiness of ordinary sense pleasures for all the reasons I just described. And he saw that this was the, as the sense pleasures was the, were the fruit of purity of action, he saw that these states of mind were the fruit of purity of mind a mind that is not inundated with, uh, with wanting things to be different. And when those, when those are absent, we get this sense of, uh, of our mind, this one-pointedness. But then he started to realize something. And this is uh, where the world of tranquility moves on in our practice to the world of insight and inquiry and wisdom. He began to see that even these most sublime states of tranquility, for all of their benefits, all of their fruits, these states are actually what he called lokiya sukha. These are uh, just a refined form of worldly happiness, lokiya sukha, of the world. And this word lokiya, worldly, or lokiya sukha, which is worldly happiness, is also described as the happiness that depends on satisfying a hunger. Depending on, it depends on getting what you want. When you have it, you're really happy. When you don't, you're not happy. This is what he called worldly happiness. This is the happiness of ordinary sense pleasures. This is what he also called, Lokiyasuku was also translated as the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery because we tend to become slaves to uh, this kind of unreliable uh, uh, sense of well-being. So he saw that even the most delicious meditative state couldn't quite uh, live up to the expectation of of it being a reliable refuge. So then what do you do? So many of you may have come looking for a great meditative experience or even to try to replicate one you had at a previous meditation or a previous retreat. Any of you carrying that what we often joke about is carrying the corpses of previous retreats? <laughs> it's human nature. And this is these the same experience that Buddha called a springboard to awakening. He also called the, them as having the potential to corrupt your practice, to be the corruptions of insight, because the tendency to chase after them, and then get onto that gerbil wheel of waiting and hoping. So at this point he saw that even the most famous meditation master of his day, who actually invited the Buddha to come and teach with him, and eventually take over his flock of meditators. And Buddha in his heart says, this guy's not liberated. There's no freedom here. This is just refined bondage. And so then he left that uh, particular form of practice. The practice, he left the extreme of the world of sense pleasures and traded it in temporarily for the world of asceticism, of extreme self-mortific- self-mortification, which means that he started doing these practices where he starved himself, where he denied himself food and comfort. Uh, and the proponents of this kind of practice were had the view that if you could deny the body enough, you could be so... Um, so nihilistic in this way that eventually the spirit would rise up and you'd be liberated because you wouldn't be dependent on your body anymore. But that was the big trap. Sounds logical, but all it did was make him sick and tired and unable to practice and unable to see very clearly. And he saw that that going to this extreme was completely um, useless as well as going to the extreme of um, associating our sense of well-being to the pleasures of the senses. And this is, it's at this time that he began to get an inkling, uh, intuition of a middle way that's somewhere between these extremes of denial, rigidity, and indulgence. And he remembered a time when he was Uh, young, about uh, either six or nine years old, and he was lying very comfortably under a uh, cherry apple tree or something like that, and he was well fed and very comfortable, very tranquil. And He realized that the middle way uh, asks us to be healthy as much as we can be given the limitations of our body, to be well fed, to have some measure of comfort, to do, have pleasures in our life, to ornament our life with pleasure, but not devote ourselves to it, to do things that bring gladness to our hearts, that this is really essential, that we incline toward gladness, keep good company, enjoy solitude, enjoy this magnificent place, and really take it in. So he remembered that and he began to take some food but there was no one to teach him anymore. There was nobody who could say okay I'll show you the place to find a a reliable refuge. Uh, So nobody there so he was um, once he was a little stronger he decided that he would just sit down and he sat down under the famous Mahabodhi tree or the, the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya India, and he made the determination not to get up until he found uh, what he was looking for. So it's obvious, even from this, that he knew that at this point that whatever he was looking for was not to be found externally, but it was an inside job but he didn't exactly know how that was going to happen. But the yearning, instead of it, the desire, instead of it leading him to, to be in that state of, of constant hunger, he followed the longing back to his seat, to where he was sitting. And he sat, and he then used some of the same techniques he had learned with his uh, tranquility concentration teacher. And he, it is said that he at that time he entered into some of these states of delight and happiness, the happiness of concentration, the happiness of purity of mind. But it's said in the teachings that he did not let the delight of these overwhelm him or take him over. He didn't just sit and luxuriate in it. Instead, he took that that sense of well-being, that sense of steadiness, that observing power that had developed quite strongly, and instead he used it to do exactly what you're doing, to carefully inquire into, what's it like to be here? What is my experience, moment to moment? And he used every experience as his path. Every experience. So even, this is a reminder that everything that you experience here, if you can notice it, it becomes your path, it becomes your manure. So everything is used in the service in the service of awakening our consciousness. So everything he paid attention to, what, did he, what do we pay attention to naturally when we sit down? We naturally notice our bodies. We naturally notice our moods and emotions. We notice that stream of, of thinking. We notice it all. We notice without trying. We notice the sounds right now. We, know that we may notice the... Um, the feeling in the room, kind of vibration, the sense of immediacy, the living quality. Whatever that is, as he sat there he paid attention to whatever came into his consciousness, using that, the power of mindful attention to examine what was going on. And he began to see something really interesting he began to see that the more he paid attention, the more he shined the light of attention on his experience, a few things happened. One, he started to see that everything that came into his mind, it came for a little while and then it went away. And that everything that that came and went away, he saw that it, it, there, was nothing, there was no point in holding on to it. And he saw that it was all just happening by itself, that it was just what we sometimes call selfless, egoless. It was just happening. But another interesting thing happened, because as he paid attention, he had all kinds of things go through his mind. He had strong desires. He was visited by, um, by all the voices of doubt, of fear, of, um, of inflation, of deflation, all the things that go through our minds. But he saw that all of it was coming and going. None of it could define him. Just bubbles, like bubbles popping. But another amazing thing happened. The more he paid attention, everything he paid attention to just made his uh, mind brighter. It just brightened the light until there was a point where his mind was really just shining, it was just shining very brightly. And everything was felt so clearly. Everything was experienced so clearly. And then he began to see that everything's, when we, you really get right down to it, everything's very simple. And Later he coined, he, he gave this discourse, uh, that's sometimes called the all, where he began to see where, that in the seen, there's just what's seen when we see something. In the heard, just what's heard. In the smell, just what's smelled. and the tasted, just what's tasted. Felt, just what's fe- felt. Coming and going, no me, no mine, no self at all. Just what there is, coming and going. And the more he saw this flow of experience, the more his mind stopped grabbing at the pleasurable ones, stopped pushing away the unpleasant ones. That's our tendency, have you noticed? And as his mind began to open that, what one teacher calls that tight fist of grasping, there was this kind of openness And he began to feel what later called was, was the fruit of what he, he called purity of view, of being able to just see things the way they are. Things coming and going, simple sense experiences. He began to experience as, as the fruit of purity of view a, a kind of happiness that he had never experienced before. This happiness he called Uh, Vipassana happiness, or the joy of equanimity, the joy of 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 serenity, a joy of a sense of well-being, a first glimpse of a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was going through his mind. Can you imagine sitting here, and pains come, moods come, but you're, and it's all very passionate and alive. You're experiencing the whole range of experience, that all the stuff you had today, but something in you is just unmoved by it, some place untouched. And there this great joy at not being so involved, not being blown by the wind so much, by the, the joys or the sorrows, but just like a mountain in the middle of it, great joy of equanimity. And as he sat there and saw that he could not be defined by all this changing circumstances and he felt this kind of openness, all of a sudden, in a flash of insight, it's as though his mind opened and it's as though it turned around the other way. And he realized, whoa, the reliable refuge I've been searching for this place of trust is none other than the very nature of my own mind. And he realized the heart or mind of of non-clinging. He he realized nirvana, that sense of a mind that's not caught up in what's going on. This he called the, the highest happiness. And that allowed him to then include everything. He didn't feel separate from anything and it unleashed his uh, feeling of love and connection, caring. So this was, as I mentioned before, this was a, first this feeling of balance was a taste of a well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances, what he called locutra sukha, unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence of what's going on. The happiness of freedom, the happiness that is free of hunger. Does that seem like an interesting uh, place to aspire to? Well, in fact... Every moment of mindful attention, and I'm this may not be so obvious at first, but every mindful attention moment of mindful attention is a moment, because is a moment uh, of being unstuck, a moment of of being beyond the power and influence of whatever's of there, because in that moment there's the open-handed acknowledgement the holding the bowing to just what's there without interference that's mindfulness so in a moment of mindfulness there's no we're not trying to get rid of anything we're not trying to hold on to anything we're not trying to build any monument to what's going on we're just open to life as it's presenting itself so just even this moment just what's that like just to open to whatever your experience is without interference this is like a mini Nirvana. And what we try to do in our practice is is exploit or strengthen this this quality of knowing so that we can develop a kind of confidence that we have within us that, um, that reliable refuge, that you are the Buddha. That as one Japanese poet, Ryokan, put it, Buddha is your mind. The nature of your mind and the way goes nowhere. It's right here. Don't look for anything but this. Just keep trusting present attention, trusting awareness, moment by moment. So at first, as the, as the prince sat there under the tree, quite amazed by his realization and all that, the insights that came cascading through his mind At that, after that. He thought about it and he just didn't think anybody could get it. He just, just didn't think. He, he thought it was a little too subtle. But then he saw with his so-called eye of wisdom those that there were many with what he called just a little dust on their eyes and if they were pointed in the right direction, pointed not toward the, the next best experience but pointed back to their own mind and body that using the very anchor of our body to help align and orient our attention to the present moment, that there are those with that little dust who could uh, awaken and realize the same fruit, that same highest happiness, the happiness, what he called the happiness of peace. And so at that point he went and found his ascetic friends because he thought that they were the most sincere people who'd be willing to starve themselves. It had to be really sincere. Maybe misguided, had gone a little bit ignorant, going to such an extreme. And they, at first, they um, they thought he'd gone off the wet, wa- you know, off the whatever, the, off the rails. And but he, they saw a kind of serene countenance. They saw this kind of radiance that was coming from him. That's what happens when, you, when we orient ourselves more toward now and toward non, non-struggle, non non-strain, where we learn to open to life as it is. And they felt this strange impulse to, uh, at least one of the renditions, they felt this impulse to prostrate. I felt that once uh, when I saw somebody who, who really was radiating that... Um, that light it's a strange thing i don't usually talk about this but the funny thing is the person who i felt that with was anna who's sitting here i'll i'll tell the story another time <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> little aside <laughs> So what he shared with them, which I'll later talk about in more in more depth on a further night, he he said uh, in the first talk that he gave to them, he said, you know, life's tough. Being born is tough, getting sick is tough, getting old is tough, dying is tough. Not getting what you want is tough, not wanting what you get is tough. I'll repeat these in a couple of nights. <laughs> and What makes it really problematic is um, that we want it to be different than that and we need to really stop struggling and it is possible to stop struggling and we do that in every moment of mindful attention and that is the path that we follow to the cessation of struggle and the center of that path the navigator of that path is is mindful attention and loving kindness meeting the world of our our actions, all the movements of our mind, and uh, using it to develop wise understanding. And that's really what we're doing. That's the direction of our practice. And it may have solved the mindfulness and all this solved the Buddha's um, issue, Um, but unfortunately, uh, he can't practice for us. And uh, so we, we have to discover this ourselves, but you have all the requisites that you need, you have all the conditions, and what we're doing today, even though at this point in the retreat may feel like you're swimming against the stream, uh, you are slowly entering a different kind of stream, uh, the stream of the Dharma, that will uh, inevitably, if you keep uh, following it, uh, which really goes nowhere, remember, but if you keep following that sense of of being right here, right now, uh, you will um, you'll realize that um, you are, as one flavor of teaching puts it, you are what you're looking for. So I'd like to end with a passage about happiness uh, by a teacher, a Tibetan teacher named Gendon Rinpoche. He says, happiness, it's called free and easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go, which is another way of saying mindfulness. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your body and mind has no ultimate importance in that it changes, has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with it, get caught up in it, become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to allow the entire, as he says, the entire game to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears. Magically, again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching. Or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you in every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good experiences and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there. Open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this attention, this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything is right here. So let's sit. Just for a moment. May all beings realize the highest happiness. Thanks for, for your attention. I know it's sometimes tough on the first night. Uh, i ready for...